This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. If MLS owners aren't making money from their franchises, why do they even have them? This is a question that has been bouncing around in my head for quite some time. It resurfaced the other day as I was listening to Joe Rogan and Reggie Watts commentate on a video of Robert Kraft, who is the owner of MLS's New England Revolution and the NFL's New England Patriots. The video was of Kraft meeting with Vladimir Putin. In the video, Kraft hands Putin a Super Bowl ring, and Putin never gives it back. Joe and Reggie thought that this was hilarious, and so did I. I've provided a link to that video in the write-up of this podcast on 343coaching.com, so you can go check out exactly uh, what sparked these thoughts for me. Uh, and this video, this this little clip, got me thinking about how sports owners can leverage their teams to do things that sports fans may not even notice or understand. So I called Gary Kleiben, 343's founder, to discuss the reasons why someone like Kraft might want to own an MLS franchise. And we got into a bunch of other topics, specifically one that I think is very, very important, especially right now in the times that we're going through, about why ownership is far, far more important than being in positions of coaching and management, especially for minorities. After listening to this episode, I'm sure you're going to have questions, you're going to have thoughts, you're going to have feelings, and we would love for you to share those with us. We want to continue the discussion on topics like this. These are very, very important topics. They need to be discussed. So make sure you hit us up with anything that's on your mind. We would love to hear from you. Before we get into today's discussion, we will start with a brief message about our powerful, powerful online coaching program, and then we are going to get right into things. So thank you for being here with us on the 343 podcast. We really appreciate you listening, and we hope that you enjoy this episode. When it comes to coaching education, being able to discern what will and won't help you can be a costly and confusing exercise. I know this because I've experienced it myself. It's frustrating. The internet is flooded with so much information. There are thousands of drills out there for you to watch. There are tons of things that you can try with your teams and with your players, but without context, and without proper guidance from a legit mentor, you're not going to get the edge that you're looking for or the results that you want. That's what the 343 Premium Coaching Education Program gets right. It's rooted in the real experiences of coaching boys and girls soccer right here in America. As a coach, Brian Kleiben has faced the same issues like training just twice per week, kids missing practice, field congestion, pay to play, you name it. But by using the 343 framework and staying consistent with the methodology, he has been able to overcome the obstacles and produce college-level, professional, and international caliber players. What the 343 coaching program offers you is unlike anything else in the country because it cannot be replicated. It's not theory or speculation like you'd see in a presentation, and it's not staged and scripted like you'd get at a convention. This program is the work of a master practitioner, his real art, captured and delivered to you in its purest form to help you gain an advantage and become a better coach. The program features videos of Brian mic'd up 
during actual training sessions with his own players and teams as they prepare for their league games and tournaments. This is the only program in the country that gives you this type of authentic, behind-the-curtain look at player, team, and coach development. So if you're looking for just drills, well, we've got those, but more importantly, we have the mentorship, the proven results, and the community of ambitious coaches that you won't find anywhere else. To experience all of this, consider joining the 343 Premium Coaching Education Program. You can find all of the details at 343coaching.com. Yeah, I know one of the things that I've been thinking about quite a bit lately is, you know, when the podcast first started, my idea for the podcast was to change the conversation in American soccer because at the time it was, I I thought everything was pretty bland and pretty boring and there was nothing really revolving around coaching uh, that I wanted to, that I wanted to hear. And as the podcast has evolved, it's obviously become something much different than it had or than it was in the past. And now here we are, we find ourselves in the middle of a global pandemic and there's obviously some major, major, major things happening inside the United States. And I'm now looking around and I'm, I'm seeing that there's a need to kind of change the conversation again, or I have a desire to change the conversation again, because nobody's really covering stuff that I feel like is important and highlighting things that are important at this moment. And and one of those is kind of like the, the, the fact that American sports and then American soccer specifically are kind of just absent from the, the activity and, uh, you know, from providing a voice or providing a platform or providing a, a you know, a sense of, um, yeah, escape or anything like that, uh, during, during these kind of these tough times. And so I thought it was, I, I thought it would be beneficial to, yeah, again, change the conversation, start talking about some things that are, that are happening in the world and how we feel about them, not necessarily that they're right or wrong, but, or that we are right or wrong, but just how we feel about them. And, and one of those things is, you know, the role of MLS, uh, the role of MLS, I guess. And then why would anybody in, in their right mind want to own an MLS franchise? Uh, and then how that kind of ties into what's happening today. So long-winded kind of rambling, jumping off point, but, um, yeah, maybe just your initial reactions from, from that and kind of the stuff that we've discussed before we hit record and, um, and and then we can kind of take it from there. So what do you think? You know, bring me back to the MLS question. Okay, remind me. But what comes to mind when you framed everything like that is, and the purpose of the podcast and all that stuff, you know, the podcast was pretty heavy historically in soccer-specific things. So talking, I mean, the sport itself, what happens on the field. So you had a lot of guests, which were coaches and interviewing them and their experiences and you know what would work what wouldn't work and you know then you would share our experiences your experiences on what would work what wouldn't work on the field you know to make our players and teams better and our coaches better and from the sporting side you know elevate our our sporting game in the country so that's one area and the main area that i think the podcast was covering and then the other area we did dabble in john a little bit I think you agree with this. We did dabble into the polit- political side and the politics of of soccer and sport in general, maybe. We touched on it. And at times, people liked it. But at other times, you know, we, we'd get a little bit of blowback saying, hey, guys, like, 
why are you talking about this political stuff? You know, uh, why are you talking about what's happening in the boardroom, uh, you know, regarding soccer? Um, so some people enjoyed it. Other people didn't really make the connection. And here we find ourselves now. And I think, I hope that what's happened here with all these crises is maybe it's brought a better awareness to everybody in general that there definitely is a link between uh, quote unquote non-sporting stuff and sporting stuff. So the political side of sport, um, the economic side of sport, the cultural side of sport, the, the societal impact of sport is very important and it's intrinsically linked. You can't separate sport and politics or sport and these other things. And historically, in particular here in North America and in the United States specifically, it seems like there's always been a concerted effort to craft a narrative uh, that sport is just sport and it has nothing to do with politics. Um, and I think there's a variety of reasons for that, which we can touch on if you'd like. But in the rest of the world, I think people, the fans, everybody really understood that politics is an integral part of sport. Um, but here in North America, maybe the highest profile situation was the kneeling during the national anthem. Uh, Colin Kaepernick, of course, one of the leaders of, of that expression of protest, of that political expression. And when it happened and when it was happening, you know, it seemed like the athletes were the ones getting a backlash, like keep politics out of sport. What do you know about uh, things outside of soccer, outside of football or outside of basketball stay in your lane sort of conversation as a and i viewed it as a way of i mean oppression is a very strong word because when you think of oppression it's you know there, there there's there's images that aren't necessarily um peaceful um but i i saw it as a limiting of free speech and you know, fast forward to now, and it looks like these crises have maybe awoken something in our public uh, to the point where they're like, oh, wow, I guess sport does play a much larger role than we thought. So I don't know. I just wanted to get that off my chest, John. Um, yeah. I don't know if you have something to add to that or not. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember, I don't think we talked about it publicly, but I remember during that time, you and I, I think, had a conversation about, you know, how... <laughs> I'm trying to figure out the right way to say this. Um, you know, America basically couldn't handle that that political stance that Colin Kaepernick took during that time, and that and that connection to uh, or between sport and politics was really, you know, it was really hard for Americans to swallow that that those two were connected. And I think as a nation, we really reacted poorly because we don't have very much experience with it, or uh, we've been kind of in a way brainwashed to think that those two things shouldn't be interlocked when they really are, especially around the entire world. And now we're seeing, yeah, like, like you kind of just alluded to that we're seeing that it actually can be a very good platform and it can be, and it should be in my opinion, uh, linked. Uh, and, and these things, you know, should be happening, you know, sport and athletes and, and people with platforms and owners and everybody, you know, there, there's a ton of value in in using sport as you know a vehicle for expression of your opinion, whatever those are. Um, 
And, and yeah, I, I think just thinking back to that, that time, I, th- I think it was with you that we had that conversation where, you know, we just weren't reacting appropriately during that time, whether you thought it was right or wrong, but we just couldn't handle it as a nation that's, you know, sport and politic were politics were colliding. Yeah. And, and what's, what's interesting is it depends on what side of the aisle you fall. And I don't mean Democrat, Republican, I mean, uh, owner and non-owner, right. Ultra wealthy and, and just average Joe's. Um, because if you're an owner and super wealthy and this is your asset, um, you kind of don't want your platform to be utilized for, um, political agendas, others' political agendas, right? But they can use it for their own political agenda for sure. I mean, think about it this way too, John, if, or the irony of it all, if sport and politics were like church and state, right? Completely exclusive things. Why is it that the national anthem is always played, you know, in American sports? Uh, why, why a big hoopla about the flag always why do we always have i don't know f-16s or f-122s you know doing flyover stadiums uh, during bowl games or championship games or things of that nature those are all political uh, instruments being utilized Uh, why do we go to the white house you know when (laughs) when you win a championship etc etc you know these are all little subtle clues that there's a strong link there and yet, you know, it seems like the wool has been pulled over so many's eyes that it's different. You can just look at history, too. The Olympics are notorious for different countries to express their own agendas, right? Their own sort of superiority or, or competition for superiority and what that might mean off the field, you know, for them diplomatically and, and economically. I think it's safe to say that both you and I agree that sport and politics should it should be a thing it, and it is you know around the rest of the world and here here in the united states it's uh muted for for a lot of reasons you you mentioned that you know uh, mls owners i i, I go to soccer immediately because that's what's front of mind for me but sport owners just in general franchise owners in general don't necessarily want somebody else using their platform to express their opinions because that is you know their livelihood or maybe not livelihood that's probably the wrong thing to say but that's their their product that's their baby um and they want to be able to use that accordingly so uh with that now kind of entering the the frame i guess we can kind of talk about you know why somebody might want to own an MLS franchise because there there might be different motives behind it than people understand or or even think about because we've for the I don't know the last 20 30 years we've done a really good job as a nation of kind of turning our a blind eye to the fact that there's a lot of politics happening in sports and uh, yeah, so with with all that stuff in mind, we've I think we painted the picture, and, and now we can kind of talk about why the hell anybody else would want to own an MLS franchise or, in a greater to a greater extent, uh, an American sports franchise. Yeah, let, I'll keep it to the MLS uh, because that's what our audience principally is, uh, but it applies across the board, in my opinion, of course. So one we've already touched on is you own a professional sports team; it's almost like a gateway into the political arena. Yes, it's owners are billionaires. Uh, they have inroads into politics through their other businesses simply by the mere fact 
that they are so wealthy and the political machinery, you know, uh, relies on them or, or leans on them for certain things. So that's an inroad. But I think owning a pro sports team offers yet another angle for them uh, that maybe owning Home Depot doesn't necessarily um, provide. And that is you're more in the public consciousness. Uh, people are more aware of who you are and you're able to create an image uh, that might be distinct or, or better, right? A better image uh than if you just own some sort of corporation that creates widgets um because you know sports a sports team can be leveraged to do quote-unquote good things in the community because they're an integral part of whatever community their stadium happens to reside in uh, beyond just hiring people and doing jobs you know you can do community service initiatives uh you can leverage uh, the fame of your professional players to go out into the community and basically uh, spread the word or spread the good deeds that you want out in the public. And all of this, you know, elevates not just your image, but, you know, you can create a larger network if you're the, you're the owner into these adjacent um, industries, or even in politics. I mean, if you wanted to become a politician, you can do so. You know, Mauricio Macri always comes to mind. He is, he was the former president of Boca Juniors for a while. And it's a little bit different regarding ownership uh, elsewhere in the world and ownership here in the States. But, you know, he became this a larger than life public figure as a result of uh, being the president of Boca, and then he parlayed that into becoming president of Argentina. He became the president of the country. Mm. And I mean, you know, that's at the national stage, but it doesn't have to be national. It could always be a local or provincial or state sort of thing that you're after. And it doesn't have to be that you're going for elected office either. You can simply use your influence or your clout to, to you know, get into the legislative halls and you know try to pass an agenda that better helps your your not your professional sports team but your other businesses your real money makers so anyways i went on for a while there but that's one main point that i wanted to illustrate because we were on the politics side of things um and the other main point i think that we should touch on which is critical is understanding the business side of it, the revenue side of owning a professional sports team and what kind of return on investment uh, there is there. Again, we've talked about some of this stuff privately or, you know, we've, we've discussed possibly, you know, creating content around these types of ideas. But to my knowledge, we haven't really did it or done a deep dive into, you know, like the, the reason um, why MLS is a, a closed uh, system why these franchise owners um, would invest the, the millions and, and millions of dollars into these teams like they're like they're doing now uh, everybody well not everybody that's a big generalization uh, quite a quite a good number of people believe that you know it's all about uh, money and and power and control which are all right uh, to a certain extent but you've always had a kind of a different take 
on on that. And I think it's important for for that to kind of just be aired out because it it'll change the perspective of I think quite a few people when they when they hear you talk about it a little bit differently than than everybody else. Yeah, well, well, one angle we just discussed, it's the political angle and how to wield that greater influence uh, to benefit your other ambitions, be they political themselves or be they uh, to gain favor for your other businesses, your adjacent businesses. And I keep going back to Home Depot because it's such a big brand and it's the one that always comes to mind. It's Arthur Blank, the owner of the Falcons, the owner of um, Atlanta United and MLS. Uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know if I, you can say the owner of Home Depot because it's a public company, but certainly with with his uh, ownership percentages in terms of of stock uh, and stuff, certainly he, he's classified as such. But yeah, like that's their money maker. The money maker is not the professional sports team. In fact, you can go back through history and always when there's an investigation into uh, MLS and what the revenues are like and what their expenditures are like, none of which we know for sure because it's a private company and you know only they know their true financial numbers. But you can kind of reverse engineer in a way and do some sort of analysis if you're a, a, a very good at that sort of stuff and, and come to the conclusion that they aren't really money makers. They aren't make, these franchises aren't really making money. Um, one person in particular that, that has the expertise, in my opinion, to do such an analysis is, is uh, Steven Szymanski, right? John, you, you, you know who that is. That's the um, Soccernomics guy? Yeah, the author of Soccernomics. He has a PhD in economics, professor of, of economics, I believe, over in Michigan, uh, has been studying this stuff for decades. And I don't know where I read it. I'm just going off the cuff here. But I think he wrote a blog post or two or a series of blog posts on his own site, kind of trying to break down what these financial numbers look like. And the conclusion is that MLS and the franchises are not really making money. And if they are profitable at all, it's peanuts, John. It's if we're if we're talking about an owner that's worth, I don't know, 10 billion with a B, 10 billion dollars, and a franchise is making, oh, I don't know, five million dollars in profit a year, that's that's literally like me and you making ten dollars. You know, it, it it means nothing. Okay. Uh, so then the question naturally arises: well, what are these owners in it for? We covered one. It's the politics. But the monetary one, the monetary one goes something like this. You purchase a franchise. The franchise fee, let's say, is, oh, I don't know, $10 million, which I think is what uh, Toronto FC uh, reportedly paid for it in 2007, something like that. And then here we are 13 years later, and the franchise fees are going for $200 million. So the asset that is owning the franchise went from 10 million to 200 million in 13 years. I did a, a, a little calculation here before you called. Somebody's going to have to check the math on me because I literally just wrote it on, on pen and paper here and I, and I haven't double checked it. That's practically around a 25, 26% annualized return, uh, annualized return. What does that mean? That means on an annualized basis, 
you can increase your investment by 20, you're returning 25% every single year. So it's a compounding uh, asset. Compare that to the stock market. If you invest in the stock market, some mutual funds or something, uh, or some index funds rather, you know, historically that could return seven, eight percent, you know, annualized return. So you're looking at an asset class that is owning a professional sports team that is outperforms the market by a factor of three. And that's not a linear factor, John. It's compounding. So it's an outrageous return on investment, just merely purchasing a franchise, sitting on it. You don't have to win championships. You don't have to perform well on the field. You don't have to do anything necessarily right or wrong. And who cares about attendance and all this other stuff? You can just literally squat on the asset for a decade and then make 150 million, uh, 200 million or more, you know, uh, dollars. So the money equation is on flipping the asset. It's not on the revenues that somebody makes in any particular year. I'll, I'll, I'll pause there to see if you want to interject any other thoughts. Yeah. The, the thought of, of scarcity and, and in the, in the way that major league soccer has done it, like artificial scarcity, limiting the amount of, of franchises that, that, can be in existence is also an important factor to that asset flipping and then the value the valuation of that asset if there's you know only 30 30 franchises or 32 franchises and yeah it it really boosts the price of that over you know the course of time i that's how i kind of think about it I, i joked with you recently that uh, yeah, I failed a lot of my classes in high school and college, so I don't have the best understanding of all the stuff that you're that you're talking about. But uh, I think as a as a layman, I I can kind of identify with it. So yeah, the scarcity aspect. Well, uh, actually, that's precisely what it is. That is precisely what enables this this annualized return that's so outrageously high. It's you're limiting supply. Economics one hundred and one, right? Limit the supply, the price goes up. So you're limiting. Um, the number of franchises that are available in the marketplace. Hence the whole discussion about promotion relegation and all of these sorts of things. So that is the model. That is why people are falling over themselves to try to get in on the ground floor when the price is only, yes, and I'm saying only, only 200 million. 200 million is nothing, okay, uh, when you're buying an asset of this nature. 200 million well, in 10 years, 15 years, it's going to be $2 billion with a B for you. Uh, it's going to end up being the value of, I don't know, the Los Angeles Clippers or an NBA franchise. Just wait on it long enough, and that's what's going to happen. So if we want to talk about what's best for the country's soccer, the sport itself, what is good for uh, the American soccer landscape, as a whole, meaning what's good for second division clubs, third division clubs, fourth division clubs, youth, uh, rec, college, you, you name it, the entire ecosystem. What's good for the entire ecosystem? Well, it's not this. This is very bad for the ecosystem. You are limiting supply. You are limiting the amount of investment that people are incited to, to, to partake in at the lower divisional levels. Because if there's a gatekeeper saying who can or can't join the party at the top ever and it's limited, then why invest? 
why spend, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 million dollars in a third or, or, or USL team or, or third uh, tier team? Well, they'll do it because they're also a closed shop and they're also operating on the same business model. Hey, guys, buy your USL team now before we close up shop, you know, and then there we go again with, you know, owners basically having the capacity to squat on their asset and flip it later. The closed doors at the top, actually, as they increase their own value, they decrease the value of pretty much everything else, minus like kind of what you're talking about right now with what's happening with USL, which they're, it looks like they're kind of expanding their league in a very similar fashion to Major League Soccer. But outside of that, everything else is pretty much squashed. There's no there's no real reason for anybody to invest any amount of money. You, you mentioned millions of dollars, but even like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars sometimes in, in youth clubs or, or just even their, in their community because there is no, there, there is no long-term payoff for it, I guess. There is no incentive for them to do that. Precisely, John. So And so here we are, right? And here we are, you know, I've been beating this drum for publicly since 2009, so 11 years, I've been trying to do my part and and share, you know, what it is I think I know and, and what's happening in the landscape and how it impacts everybody uh, in a negative way, Aside, with the exception of those in the inner circle, of course. They're having a blast and a party. Um, and, and, you know, people want to say, hey, don't co-opt the the terrible things that are happening in our nation now for your agenda. Um, and I'm not, you know, and that's another tool that they use to silence uh, dissent and silence um, people who are illuminating the underlying power structure that hurts everybody. But I'll go ahead and say it, you know, this sort of setup that we have in the United States, Americans in the, in the soccer landscape prevents people uh from from accruing power it prevents people from rising um to the top uh, from an ownership perspective if we want to speak about minorities and i've been speaking about minorities and how they're you cast aside for again for over a decade in public well here's a perfect opportunity if we're focusing on black people well how many black owners are in MLS. Um, if people want to talk about Magic Johnson or or recently what came out, who who just purchased a, a like a one percent or two percent stake in Philadelphia? Shoot, it's a basketball player. Is it Kevin Durant? I don't remember. Dang it. Anyways, somebody purchased a stake. Great, but it's one or two percent. You have no power, right? Even if you owned an entire MLS franchise outright, you have no power. There's you know, whatever it is, 30 other owners um, that form the so-called board of governors that are going to vote, you know, what goes, what doesn't go, who can do what, who can't. Um, we need independent clubs, John. And the way for minorities to own their own clubs and make their own decisions and run it as they see fit is to have an open ecosystem, man. It's very simple. It always comes back to that. So it's the power structure that keeps holding all of us back. It's the power structure in our country, be it professional sports or otherwise, that causes so many of the injustices that we see 
in, in our country from the wealth gap, from the rich getting richer and the poor getting poor and the middle class, you know, being, you know, crushed and, and, you know, suffocating and barely being able to make ends meet to uh, a racial and minority uh, sort of discussion. All of it is in our underlying power structures. So when we talk about, oh, we should have more Latino coaches or black coaches or black GMs or that's not going to do anything. We need ownership, owners. And that's something that they won't change. And that's something that they won't fight for. And that's something that they don't want you to know about. And that's something that the media should be all over. And they're not. And even, even when they do cover it, it's it's more more or less just kind of like, yeah, one one piece or one, you know, one one story, and there's no there's no real um, yeah fire behind it. They don't really care about it. Is the sense that I always get whenever I do see something covered. It's more more or less just mentioned, not necessarily uh, covered. No, so. agreed. And and there's probably a couple of reasons for that 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 I think is one is um, could be straight up ignorance. They actually have no idea of what it is that you and I are talking about right now. They just don't, it's not top of mind and maybe it's not top of mind or they don't understand it because they haven't been impacted by it. They're not actually operating, um, as a practitioner in the ecosystem. They have no ambitions or think it's impossible, uh, or care about owning a soccer club, be it a youth club or, or an amateur club or a fourth or third or second division club, or have wild dreams of owning a first division club at some point. They don't even think about that. It's so far removed from their bubble uh, of thinking that they don't go down this, this path. So that's one is the ignorant side of the equation. And the other one is, Hey, like you covered in the last episode, they basically are doing the bidding of, the league and the owners, you know, and, and if they're going to go down this rabbit hole of illuminating the power structure and the injustices in the power structure and the ramifications, uh, the negative ramifications of the power structure, well, they themselves are going to, uh, find themselves potentially in hot water and they're not going to risk their jobs. They're not going to risk their livelihoods, uh, for minorities or, or for these injustices, they just aren't going to do it. So why touch it? And then the, the final component is probably their editors or whoever it is that they work for are in a similar boat as the two things I described, but also they're in a business of how many clicks are we going to get? How many reads are we going to get? They aren't necessarily in the business of investigative journalism. Uh, I don't think that's ESPN or, or, or Fox Sports sort of charter. They're more in, in the entertainment, hey, just create this bubblegum content, you know, cite, do some controversy stuff, you know, uh, amplify all the superficial nonsense that, you know, the general public, you know, is entertained by. This isn't the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, which they have their issues themselves, which I won't go into and I'm not an expert in, but it's not one of those uh, sorts of corporations where, you know, Pulitzer Prize might be something a journalist is after. One of the things that came to mind as you were talking was how if you don't have minority owners, that in itself limits the the expression of minority points of view. And so you don't have 
an alternate perspective. You just have whoever you are letting into your into your uh, yeah, country club, for for lack of a better term, I guess. Um, and one one of the best illustrations of that was in the HBO show Ballers. I don't know if you ever watched that, but uh, Dwayne Johnson basically has to go in front of all the NFL owners, and he walks into the room and he looks at them all, and it's like, okay, I'm going to talk to 30 white dudes, um, or however many teams they have. Um, that was like the first like real visualization I've ever had of you know, what that would look like. Like that's what their meetings look like. Um, back to what I was saying though, uh, not having the ownership just, yeah, limits the, the, the voice or the expression of, of their opinions, black, black opinions or minority opinions. Um, and, and as you continue talking, another note that I wrote down is I'm not aware of a very prominent black soccer journalist in the United States. There's a there's a handful uh, of Latino guys, but I'm I'm not aware of a of a male or female uh, the a black journalist. I can't think of one off the top of my head. I can't either. I'm sure you. I, I might. I imagine you recall me years ago. Always have always posting this image on Twitter of the two dozen or so uh, reporters that are basically in the mainstream. Yep. It, yeah, it, all all white guys basically. Jason you know, Davis, yeah. Grant Grant Wall, uh, Matt Doyle, like that. Yeah, I remember the image. That whole that whole crew, right? All white guys. Okay, all white guys. So, I mean, it, it, this is an issue everywhere. It's an issue everywhere, um, and I'm just hoping that there's a silver lining to all the. the the terrible stuff that's happening in their country. And that silver lining is maybe bringing more awareness to where the issues really reside. Um, for me, you know, justice isn't um, only prosecuting people who commit murder and putting them in prison and, you know, maybe, you know, reforming somehow uh, law enforcement. Um, justice just goes way deeper than that. Um, in my opinion, and I'm hoping that people who listen to this um, understand that or gain a better appreciation for that and and aren't used as as tools for the existing power structure uh, by silencing others who speak out. So, for instance, it's difficult. It's difficult for me to go online and speak out. It's difficult for me to get on camera, uh, say the things that I'm saying now to you, John, but e go even deeper, right? It's very deep. It's very difficult because, you know, then, then the general public looks at you and, and they want to silence you. And what they say is, you know, don't co-opt the tragedies for your own agenda. It's a great way to just shut people up. Um, and they think that they're doing good by you know, silencing people. They think they're doing good. And that's what's wild. I think, I hope I'm wrong because the cynical view is very bad, man. The cynical view is this might end up working out fantastically well for the establishment and very bad for everybody else. And what I mean by that is it seems like we're playing right into the establishment's hands uh, by not going for the root of the problem you know, and we're basically fighting each other 
over superficial nonsense. Yeah, I've I've had that in the in the back of my mind for a number of years now. It's almost like we exhaust ourselves with you know yelling at each other versus spending our time more wisely, which is either just starting with investigation of where the real issues lie. And then once we identify that, you know, exhausting ourselves by fighting or, or digging for uh, the root of the problem. And like you said, yeah, we just, we end up most times fighting each other, which is kind of unfortunate. Yeah. John, this and the, this, all the, all the social justice warrior stuff, all the cancel culture stuff that that's arisen that's really dangerous for the common folk. Um, that isn't going to solve a problem when you're a social justice warrior and you're saying, oh my God, I can't believe you know you said such a thing or did such a thing or whatever, and they try to cancel somebody. Um, they're canceling somebody that's inconsequential. They're canceling an employee. You know, they're canceling somebody that might have some attention and some some sort of influence, but it's superficial influence and superficial attention. The the this it almost gives employers, which are owners, right, owners an excuse and uh, an easier way of getting rid of employees, of getting rid of people that they want to get rid of. Say one thing uh, a little bit wrong, and owners will craft a narrative, will have their media guys craft a narrative um, that stimulates outrage towards one of their employees and poof, you're gone. You're gone. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it, it does make sense. And the note I wrote down earlier actually was that even though we've barely, like barely scratched the surface in some of the previous episodes on soccer politics, just that alone, the reaction that that got from a lot of people uh, was very, in my opinion, just, uh, uh, yeah, just showed that that uh, that people can't handle uh, somebody speaking out like that. Like, like they they wanted it canceled. They wanted that point of view stopped. And like you mentioned, that it play, that kind of plays into the hands of the establishment. That yeah, okay, we'll, the establishment will get behind that. Of course, shut these guys up. We don't we we don't need the we don't need these nuisances. A hundred percent. Listen, I, I want to say something else that'll probably be controversial, but you know, we're on a roll here. <laughs> um, they say, you know, everybody's like, "Oh, okay, so want change, power structure? Okay, Gary, great. You know, here's the solution. Uh, everybody should go and vote. Go vote. Go vote. Okay. Yes, go vote, guys. Fine. Um, I also have something that I think we need to consider." Um, and it's this, Wh whatever politician goes into office, be it at the president level, governor or whatever, you're just swapping one politician for another, uh, for the most part. Yes. People on the, on the left look at Donald Trump as the antichrist. People on, on the right look at Obama as the antichrist. And that's going to continue going on and on and on. And I'm not going to give my position or side one way or the other. All I'm going to say is, look, we had a black president for eight years in the highest office in the land, the most powerful position, right? Or person in quotes in the world. And look at where we're at in 2020. Look, look, did, did it help that we had a black president? 
for eight years? Did that help? I don't know. I, I think it's something that we need to think about and, and discuss. Um, where's where's the true power? Are the politicians really that powerful? Or is it the owners of uh, huge corporations that have their armies of lobbyists going to Washington or going to your state uh, uh, your state capital or whatever and lobbying for legislation and their own agendas? And that's how... That's the world that we live in. So is having a, a politician that you like in office the solution? I'm not so sure. I think ownership, again, it comes back to who are owners? Who are the power brokers in, in, in our country? You mentioned earlier that, that justice goes far deeper than you know, just prosecution of crimes and, and things like that. Would you, would you say that uh, having opportunities is part of justice or creating opportunities is part of justice absolutely man absolutely if we if if we are all here reciting uh that all men are created equal great create a power structure that indeed has that sort of impact on our society our power structure is biased our power structure is currently dominated in such a way that all men are not created equal and i'm not saying hey let's try to form some utopian egalitarian society i'm simply saying let's look at where the power really resides that's all and that is where our microscopes should be and that's what should be inspected and that's where the reform needs to happen not not bringing it back to mls listen I don't blame the owners. I don't blame the the employees of, of MLS or anything like that. Everybody um, has to make a living. Everybody is a human being. Uh, if I was an owner of MLS, you know, I, I'd be like, hell yeah, this is amazing. Great return on investment. I'm just going to sit on this motherfucker for 10 years and then, you know, multiply my returns by a factor of 10. Um, great. Those are my interests. Why can't I pursue my own interests? I can. And that's why I have nothing against Kraft and all these other guys. But, you know, I, I, like, I like everybody to be aware of what's going on. Um, and in particular, journalists who are supposed to be, quote unquote, the fourth estate. Um, and, and, you know, supposed to be, you know, this model of, of being objective and not injecting their own opinions but rather investigating and, and trying to find, uncover, and report only the unvarnished truth. Um, and that's where my beef resides because I think they have a responsibility to, to do that. And when they don't, it's upsetting because they are supporting a power structure, which in my opinion, and we've talked about it, is discriminatory. Is there any, anything else that's still on your mind that, is related to any of the topics that we covered today that you feel like you either need to get off your chest or that you really want people to walk away uh, from this from this conversation with? Yeah, I think remember two things. Hey, why own an MLS franchise if supposedly they're losing money or supposedly they're not making money? And this is something that the league office regularly says, especially when there's new negotiations to be made or they want to cry uh, to the public that, hey, look at us, we're so poor, poor owners. Um, 
the reason you want to be an owner is for the the ROI of squatting on the asset, number one. They don't make money every year from revenues or operations. They probably lose maybe a little bit of money or, or break even or, or what else. That, so that's lesson number one. Um, and from the sporting side, understand they don't have to be good on the field to make their money eventually when they flip the asset. And then two, it's it's a gateway into politics and a gateway into leveraging um, your newfound relationships as a result of owning your post sports team, leverage those things for your real money makers, which are your other businesses, not the sporting business. I also want to say something else, John, about, you know, everybody's like, oh, they've spent $200 million. Wow. Like, that's incredible. Like, if you spent $200 million, John, like, you wouldn't uh, put up with this, that, or the other thing, or you wouldn't want an open ecosystem. And Maybe there's a third thing people need to understand. $200 million to somebody whose net worth is $10 billion with a B is, what is that? It's 2% of their net worth. Okay, so if, if somebody's purchasing an MLS franchise now in 2020, you're basically putting 2% of your net worth into it. Median American households, uh, family uh, here in the United States, the median net worth is roughly a hundred thousand dollars a hundred k is their net worth so it's basically like your median american family investing two thousand dollars into something so hey i mean two thousand dollars two thousand dollars but you know don't cry me a river you know what i'm saying over two thousand dollars if you lose all two thousand um, you may still made 98,000 or you still have a $98,000 net worth. It's not much of a, it's a blip, I guess is my point, you know? So everybody needs to take that into account, have a little bit more perspective instead of thinking about your own situation and what $200 million means to you. Yeah, I just did a, a little calculation and I bought a new massage gun to help me out with my leg rehab. And that was roughly 2% of my, of my net worth. So well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. And, and, and again, talking about power structures, listen, the, the average folk like you and I, and, and 98% of the population here, you know, they're caught up in a game where when we invest, uh, or where we make purchases of that magnitude, our purchases depreciate. You purchase a car for $20,000, which is 20% of, of your net worth, for instance, and it depreciates over time. It doesn't appreciate like owning a sports team does. So we're caught in a different game. We're, we're in a rat race over here, you know, and, and they're playing on a completely different playing field and i think we need to understand this is why i think you know bernie sanders resonated with so many uh young americans and and you know people who want a change uh in in the wealth disparity in our country and wealth inequality in our country because i think we're, we're maybe starting to wake up to the fact that <laughs> we're all basically being ground grinded to to a pulp here um in general and everybody else is enriching themselves at our expense 
we touched on a lot of things that we can obviously expand on. We could we could go deeper into a, a number of different talking points that we did today. But I, I, I want to make sure that everybody knows that if there's something that we that we didn't go deep enough into, and and we leave you you know wondering things, if you have questions or thoughts that we want we want people to reach out to us and and communicate with us like how how can we better you know discuss this or you know what what did you want to hear more of what 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 confused you uh do you think we're we're right or wrong i i don't know how how deep we want to get into that but um but but basically we're welcoming your 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 feedback and in, in a conversation and what we've been doing in recent podcast episodes is answering questions at the at the end of those and you know, we, we would love to just hear from people. I don't know if you if you want to mention anything about that. No, that's perfect. We want to dig deeper. I mean, when you ask questions, when somebody asks questions, it forces us to uh, further investigate. And then we get smarter. And then, you know, when we transmit what we found to our audience, hopefully they get a little bit smarter and it creates a virtuous cycle. So the more participation we get, the better everybody or the better off everybody's going to be. Um yeah, and, and I, I view today's episode as the beginning of a much broader, deeper discussion um, because I think it's, it's just important, John. We need to have these discussions and and soccer coaches, soccer people, soccer fans, soccer parents, soccer media who are part of our audience, um, you know, I, I, I'd like to see them more engage in this sort of conversation uh, and not just you know, quote unquote, keep it to the sport, you know, or staying in your lane. I think that that falls into, you know, the trap that leads it to leads us to very bad things that are happening in our country. So anyways, I'll leave it there. All right. And, uh, you know, if, if you do have questions, if you're walking away from this with questions, or if you just have any thoughts that you want to, that you want to share with us, uh, there's a number of great ways to do that. Obviously on social media, we can start a public conversation there. Um, or, uh, you can always go to our website where the podcast is, is hosted and you can leave us your, your thoughts in the comment section, which is actually a forum where you can leave uh, lengthier feedback. If you have something that you would like to say there, uh, I know back in the day when the blog first started, you know, the comment section was like a, whew, people would go in there and just jump off uh jump off the ledge with their thoughts with uh with a lot of things so there's some novels on there so we'll see if we can get back to that um any last words that's it man all right thanks everybody All right. Thank you for listening. Do you have a question about the topic that we covered in this episode? If so, we'd love to hear from you and we will be answering some of your questions at the end of next week's episode. Submit your questions on Twitter or head to 343coaching.com to leave your question in the comment section. Make sure that you are subscribed to 343FM on your favorite podcasting app. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and many more platforms. And if you're feeling super generous, we'd love it if you dropped us a five-star rating or a review. And don't forget that you can find our entire library of podcast episodes, over 200 written articles, and our online courses that help accelerate the development of coaches and players 
using methods that have been proven to work here in the United States. Once again, all of that can be found at 343coaching.com. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you next time here on the 343 Podcast.